Hey, Dean's preaching. We need to pray. <laughs> I know that's not at all. It's always a good thing, right? But I do thank you for coming here today. I know it's... Uh, I appreciate it. A lot of other people would rather watch The Avengers Save the Universe right now. But uh, if you're here because you want to worship God, because you want to hear the Word, or just out of the sense of Christian duty, duty's not a bad thing, then I appreciate that. Praise God for your presence here. Especially in small church like this, we do not take that for granted. Thank you for coming here to hear the word. Okay, so when people talk about being shipwrecked, what images come to mind? Uh, people often think about Robinson Crusoe, a story that's been heavily romanticized. The, the original novel was not all happiness and light. There were portions of a great turmoil there and fear and, and crisis and uh, conflict. But the various cartoons and adaptations depict a tranquil, peaceful, almost idyllic life on a deserted island where Rob Crusoe makes a, seems to make a life that's pretty happy for himself. That, that's not how the novel goes, but that's the image people have of him. Then there's the uh, lesser-known Swiss family Robinson, sort of the same idea, but an entire family builds a happy life and the children grow up and somehow grow up normal. <laughs> then there's Gilligan, okay. The less we say about him, the better. But those are the images that come to mind when we talk about people being cast away at sea and shipwrecked. Uh, being, speaking of being cast away, there's Tom Hanks. He did a somewhat better job if you saw the movie. I forget the name. But, okay, I, can't, I know, I know, I was kidding. <laughs> cast away, but when he was cast away in the, South, in the South Pacific, that was no fun adventure for him. And at multiple points, the movie gives you a sense that his life was truly in danger. And it shows him almost delving into madness. And as he's buffeted by the wind, you saw how he very nearly drowned at various points. It, it, even that movie didn't depict the full horror of what it's like to be trapped at sea, buffeted by a storm, and fighting desperately, desperately for survival. Now there's this myth that, uh, you might have heard this, that drowning is a peaceful, almost euphoric way to go. Uh, according to the testimonies of people who've experience drowning, that's a myth. Some people do experience a moment of tranquility just as they're about to die, uh, when they're on the verge of death, but even before then, they go through agonizing, unspeakable panic. Imagine your body is desperately reaching for a tiny scrap of air. There's this impulse, almost ir irresistible impulse, to suck in air, but even stronger than that is the impulse to not breathe in water. So your body's basically fighting against it, and your brain is fighting against itself. And in this case, at the sea, it wouldn't just be water, it'd be bitter seawater under stormy conditions with your body being tossed around by the storm violently. Even staying afloat would be horrific. According to these survivors, drowning at sea is a horrifying way to go. The Apostle Paul had to face the possibility of this horror, not just once, but four times. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, Paul mentioned that he had been shipwrecked three times before, early in his career, while he was ministering to the Gentiles. At this point in our story, we're beyond that. Acts 27 is beyond that part. In this chapter, we see how he was shipwrecked for a fourth time. For a fourth time. Does it seem like Paul was a slow learner? <laughs> how would most of us react after, say, the second or third time of being shipwrecked and nearly drowning? Most of me is going, okay, I've had this, no more. I'm going to choose a different line of work. 
a different ministry. I'm not doing this again. But Paul kept going. Why? He continued for the sake of his ministry. Not just because it was his ministry, but because he knew this is what the Lord would have him do. He received that in no uncertain terms. And this ministry culminated in his fourth sea voyage, followed by prison, followed by further persecution, and ultimately his death. So here's how this story unfolds. Before we delve into chapter 27, we need some backstory. Ideally, we should cover chapters 21 to 28. We're not going to do that today. Okay? But by way of background, in chapter 21, we saw that the Jewish people did not like what Paul was teaching. Surprise, surprise. And so they accused him of defiling the temple, of bringing a Greek into the temple, which is against their rules. They accused him of speaking against the people, which meant telling the Jews that they need to forsake their heritage. They accused him of speaking against the law, which is not all true if you know what Paul is like. Paul preached the fulfillment of the law. So Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. And it was during this time that an angel spoke to him, telling him that uh, he would be going to Rome. That's the passage you read earlier. As Bill said, that passage sets up our story today. Acts 23, verse 6 to 11. It said that God had plans for Paul. And if you look at your bulletin, you'll see that spelled out there. God was going to have him testify in Rome. In other words, bear witness to the Lord in Rome, not just testify on his own behalf. How would that happen? Well, this chapter tells us a little bit about that. Now, there's a lot of things to unpack in the remaining chapters. I hope you can follow this as best you can. I'm not going to go over all the details because people are likely to get lost. In broad terms, we see that after he was brought before the Sanhedrin, Paul was brought before the governor, Felix. But Felix didn't take action for a while. He languished, Paul languished for two years in prison. Felix's successor, Festus, then saw Paul's case, and he dealt with that more immediately. Now, Festus understood that Paul was innocent, but he also didn't want to upset the Jews who were out for blood, who wanted to see Paul hang, so to speak. So he made Paul stand trial. Does that sound familiar? There's another famous, famous character like that. You know his name, right? Pilate. Pilate the same, was cut of the same cloth. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but he wanted to placate the mob of Jews. And we could say a lot more about the parallels there, but suffice to say that Paul was in that situation and Festus was in that dilemma. Festus even brought in the fellow King Agrippa for advice. And that didn't turn out too well for Paul either. To cut a long story short, Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen, which some might say was a mistake because this meant that he was going to be shipped off to Rome. In fact, at the end of chapter 26, we see that Agrippa says, if he hadn't done that, we could have let him free. But no, he asserted his rights as a Roman citizen. He deserved to stand trial. Off to Rome he goes. You remember how the angel promised Paul that he would be testifying in Rome? That's what's happening here, folks, but it was not a happy story. It was not a luxury cruise. Verses 1 and 2. And when it was decided that we, should sail, that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. 
And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which is about to set sail to ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Right away, we see several names tossed around these two verses. Julius, of the Augustan cohort, Adramitium, Aristarchus. In verse 1, we meet a centurion named Julius, and it says he belonged to the Augustan cohort. What is this Augustan cohort? The cohort is, appears to be a special division of the Roman army, distinguished enough that it was named after Caesar Augustus himself. They weren't under the rule of Augustus at the time. It was simply named after Augustus. It seems to imply that this was a division that was highly distinguished, highly skilled, highly respected. And Julius was in charge of 100 men from this division. That's what, that seems to be the most straightforward interpretation. That, so he's in charge of 100 men. That's what centurion means. This fellow Julius will play an important role in this story, so keep an eye out for him. He's going to be one of the main characters. Verse 2 says that, he was placed, that Paul was placed on a ship of Adramitium. Adramitium was simply a city in ancient Turkey. That's simply where the ship was from. More interesting is the fact that this verse says that, mentions Aristarchus. It says, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Who is Aristarchus? And more importantly, who is the we in this story? Well, we refers in part to whoever is writing this story. That would be Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, which is basically Luke part two. The two books dovetail together nicely. They're, you can think of them as one story. So when it says that we set sail for, that, that we put to sea, this we is Luke, Paul, and his fellow Aristarchus. You can infer from this that Aristarchus was one of Paul's traveling companions. Now, most of you have probably heard that Luke was one of Paul's companions. True enough, absolutely true. One of several, actually. Luke, Barnabas, Silas, John Mark, Timothy. Then if you read closely, there will be some less familiar names that come up. Aristarchus, Erastus, Gaius, Trophimus, Tychicus. Aristarchus was in this company, and he was certainly distinguished, because in Colossians Philemon, Paul refers to him as his fellow prisoner and fellow laborer. Prisoner implies that he wasn't just accompanying Paul, he was willing to accompany Paul to jail. Honestly, at that time, anyone who was preaching with Paul had to be aware of that danger. They're under Nero's persecution. And Nero did not like Christians, to say the least. That's one of the great testimonies to the, uh, to the sincerity of the gospel writers and the New Testament writers, by the way. The fact that these people were willing to write and teach during a time of intense persecution says that they really believed what they, what they were saying. They really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. Moving forward, verses 3 to 7, 3 to 8. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. 
We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidius. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Close along with it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. I mentioned we'd be seeing a lot more of this tell of Julius. In verse 3, we see that the centurion Julius had been treating Paul kindly. Now, some might be tempted to say, oh, he must have seen the character of Paul and was being very kind to him, and perhaps he was even impressed by Paul's ministry. I'm not going to go that far. I don't think you have enough reason to believe that. In all likelihood, he was treating Paul kindly because, well, what did he say about what the governor said about Paul? Paul was without blame. Paul was innocent of charges. He was in all likelihood told to treat Paul kindly because Paul was not a convicted criminal yet and, in fact, was known to be innocent. I suspect that's what the governor of Festus told him, at least. We don't know for sure, but it seems plausible. Julius found a ship that was sailing for Italy. Remember, Julius, as a centurion, was in charge of transporting all these prisoners. We see that there's been more than one prisoner here, not just Paul. So he finds a ship that's bound for Italy and takes the prisoners on board. For historical reasons outside the Bible, it's believed that this ship was part of the imperial fleet. I'm going to cut, this, um, cut the details short and just say that the history suggests that was the case based on where the ship was docked. So partway through their journey, the wind starts blowing against them, not violently, but just going against their journey. So they're not allowed to, they can't sail further. So they're forced to dock in a place called ah, Fair Haven. Sounds nice, right? Fair Haven sounds like a nice place to be. No, it was not. Most of the time, it's probably nice. That's probably how it got its name. But at this time of the year, it got me very unpleasant. We'll see more about that in the next few verses, verses 9 to 12. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised against them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that they could somehow reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So at this point in the journey, the weather started getting rough. This place called Fairhaven wasn't so fair anymore. Why? Well, verse 9 mentions the fast. That would be the Day of Atonement, one of the, feasts that, one of the festivals that God ordained. You know it now as Yom Kippur. It occurs roughly late September, early October, and during that time of the year, Fairhaven wasn't a very fair place to be. The weather was uh, tumultuous, it was dangerous, it was pretty hazardous there. Now the crew had to make a choice. In these verses, we see that Fairhaven wasn't a very nice, was not a suitable place to spend the winter in. It wasn't all that well protected. The pilot and the owner of the ship wanted to take their chances and risk the weather and go to a place called Phoenix, harbor of Crete. It's a harbor that's better protected. Paul disagreed. 
That's why Paul says that he perceived the voyage would be with injury and much loss. He said it would be risky to the cargo and to the ship and to the lives of the passengers. Was this the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul? I don't think so. For, because what Paul said did not exactly come true. In all likelihood, well, it's a safe bet that Paul was speaking as a seasoned traveler who had been shipwrecked three times before. If he seems like he's a little gun-shy, well, if you've been in a serious car wreck, you understand what it's like to be a little bit more careful on the roads out there. Same thing's happening to Paul here, I think. He had been shipwrecked before, his life was at risk, and he knew, you know, he did not, did not want to take any chances. So even without the Holy Spirit speaking through him, he said, let's not take this chance. I can't but wonder if he said, dudes, I was shipwrecked before, I don't want, do not want to do that again. The centurion had the final say. Remember how I said that history tells us that this ship appeared to be an imperial ship? The centurion didn't just commandeer a ship there. It was one that he had authority over. They had to decide who would he follow. Would he follow this passenger, this prisoner, who is treating kindly, but a prisoner nonetheless? Would he, obey the, would he follow the advice of the actual owner of the ship and the pilot, presumably seasoned seamen? The pilot and the owner were pretty adamant about make, moving onward. Perhaps not just because Phoenix was uh, a better protected harbor. They might have also thought that Fairhaven was a bit of a podunk town. You know, a nice place to visit, but not where they want to stay. So the centurion, Julius, in the end, sided with the ship's owner and its pilot. They were experienced, but guess what? In this case, they were wrong. Experience doesn't always make you right. Weather started getting rough. We see in verse 13 onward that um, the story continues. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. There's a lot going on in these verses here. There's a lot of action. First, the weather let up slightly, so they said, okay, let's chance this. Let's go for it. But as they're along their way, a strong wind hits, what's called the Northeaster. So they tried to strengthen the ship. They tried to gird it up by wrapping cables underneath its hull and winching them together. It's, it's a technique called frapping. You can imagine it like this. Imagine that people are, that you have some sailors holding onto cables on the left-hand side, of the on the port side of the ship, and others on the starboard side, that's uh, left and right for you landlubbers, and working them underneath the ship's hull and then winching them tight. So they're basically tying the ship together. 
sort of like duct taping it in place. Okay? It seems almost comical, but and certainly not something you do with more modern devices, but it's just a well-known technique. Then they start, started tossing equipment overboard, and they tossed cargo overboard. And that probably helped, but their lives were still in danger. The ship was being tossed and turned and was still in danger of falling apart. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, well, let's pause there, partway through verse 21. They had been without food for a long time. Did they run out of food? They had only been at, they had just come from a port. They weren't out of food yet. In fact, we'll see later on in the story that they had food with them. What is happening here was that they were being tossed and turned so badly that they couldn't keep any food down. They couldn't eat. I suspect there's a bit of hyperbole. It's possible they were able to consume small bits here and there. But in effect, they, they couldn't consume food in general. And so that added to the whole misery of the situation. When things are so bad that you're the, if seasoned seafarers get seasick, that tells you how bad this is. Continue with verse 21 onward. Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, the Lord, of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must aground, run aground on some island. I said that earlier Paul is speaking as a shipwrecked survivor as someone who was experienced, who did not want to go through that again, and who was experienced on the sea. Here he's speaking with authority from God. And he starts out by saying, I told you so. It wasn't just Paul gloating, I think. I believe he said that because he wanted to get their attention. He wanted to say, this time you have to listen to me. They were fighting for their lives at that point. It would not have been the right time for him to gloat. He was fighting his own life. He had better things to do. <laughs> so he said that an angel had come to him on that very night. And the angel said, Paul, you're going to be safe. And so will everyone who's sitting with you. Actually, to be more precise, he says, do not be afraid, Paul. Was Paul afraid at that point? We don't know for sure, but the fact that the angel said that suggests he quite likely was. In fact, if Paul was like other godly men of the Bible, he probably had his moments of doubt. He probably had moments where he was fearful, or even if he trusted fully that he'd reached his destination, he was probably fearful of all the suffering that would entail in, in the meantime. Going through God's plan isn't always pleasant. Okay. He, but Paul shouldn't have been afraid, because God had promised him that he'd be bearing witness to his glory in Rome. Honestly, if Paul wasn't fearful, I'd be wondering. He had been shipwrecked three times before. Like I said, he did not want to do that again. 
That fear would have been a glimpse into the frailty of an otherwise remarkable man of God, a man of great faith. If you feel fearful during times of God's crises, guess what? You're in good company. <laughs> By the way, if you think about this, this promise might not have seemed like much of a blessing. What was he saying? He says, Paul, don't worry. You're not going to drown. You're going to be delivered before Nero. I said that the Caesar in question was Nero. What is Nero known for? Persecuting believers. He was cruel. He was not all like the previous Caesars, not all like the previous emperors. In fact, it's believed that Paul ultimately met his death at Nero's hands. That's sort of like saying, don't worry, you're not going to drown. You're going to be devoured by lions instead. <laughs> drowning, I said the drowning is horrific, but it would have been a, a blessing in comparison, a peaceful way to go in comparison, a kindness. Yet Paul counted reaching Rome as a blessing. It was a blessing because Paul was heavily minded in serving the Lord. Most of us wouldn't think of it as a blessing. Most of us think of it as a chore. But his ultimate goal was serving God, and that comes through very clearly in all his writings. This particular blessing took the form of a trial, but it was a blessing nonetheless. God's blessings often seem like they're more trouble than they're worth, and I'm sure Paul probably had that, those thoughts now and then. But that's where he trusts that God works out all things for our good, even that good means a great deal of suffering for our own benefit. What does the Bible mean when it says that God works out all things for our benefit, for the good of those who love him? It's not a life of happiness and puppies and roses. It's talking about everything for our benefit, including our spiritual benefit. Paul is heavily minded enough to understand that's what ultimately matters. And his ministry ultimately matters because he cared about people, he cared about serving the Lord. Reaching Rome, having the opportunity to testify in Rome, was a blessing for him. Verse 27 to 32. When the fourteenth night had come, two weeks had gone by, okay? When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven along the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Verse 27 says, the 14th night had come. Two weeks had gone by. Two weeks of not keeping food down. Two weeks of being tossed back and forth. Two weeks of being pretty miserable. If you can't keep the food down, you must be in pretty miserable conditions there. Two weeks of fearing for their lives. Now notice what's happening here. They, the sailors sensed that they were nearing land. They suspected they were nearing land. In all likelihood, they were hearing the sound of breakers crashing on the shore. As the, wave, as the waves hit the shore, you can hear that. They might have heard that and said, okay, it sounds like we're in a land somewhere, you just can't tell where it is. So they took a sounding. What does that mean? Well, it's not, they weren't using echolocation. They weren't using sonar. I don't think it had been invented yet. Sounding refers to a technique where they drop a weight down overboard with a rope attached. And they use that to measure how deep the water is. It comes from 
a nautical term. Sound refers to a small body of water, certain small bodies of water. And using markings, using markings on the rope, you can tell, okay, how deep is the water? So fathom is about two yards. So first they found the depth was 20 fathoms, 120 feet. Then they venture forward a little bit more, and they take another measurement, and they find, hey, okay, is, the water is getting more shallow. We're at 15 fathoms, about 90 feet. So they say, mm, okay, we appear to be approaching land. But it's dark, and we really can't tell, and we can't see where we're going. So we might run into some rocks. So let, let's just stay put right now. Let's cast anchor and wait until daylight. So they lowered the anchors. But as they did that, the sailors secretly lowered the ship's boat. Now, what is this ship's boat? The ship itself is, don't offend mariners by referring to their ship as a boat, by the way. The ship is a much larger vessel. The boat is a smaller one. This boat would be a dinghy. A smaller vessel that might tow behind the ship. It might use it as a lifeboat, also for doing repairs, also perhaps ferrying people to shore now and then. The this boat had apparently been hauled up on deck at that point. And while lowering the anchors, the sailors also lowered this boat here. They were up to something. They wanted to escape. They wanted out. And I can't say that I blame them. So the sailors planned to use this boat to escape. They did this secretly, but Paul or the soldiers somehow caught wind of this. They saw what was going on. So Paul told the centurion soldiers, these men must stay in the ship if we want to survive. At this point, the centurion and his, shoulder, and his soldiers were determined to follow Paul. They had been impressed. They, they heard Paul's words. They heard Paul say, I told you so, now listen to me. So they're going to follow him. So what did the soldiers do? They cut the boat away. They cut the rope that tied the ship to the boat. They let the boat drift. In other words, they cut off the sailors' escape route, prevented them from escaping. Why? Because Paul said that unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Why is it so important for the soldiers to stay on board? Honestly, I don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is that Paul knew, hey, unless these people stay on board, we are not going to be saved. But didn't God already promise Paul that they would be saved? That was said earlier, right? He said, you and everyone on board, you're going to be safe. What's happening here? What's happening is this. Paul knew they would be saved. God ordained that Paul and the passengers and the crew would all be saved. But he also ordained the means by which they would be saved, certain conditions required. God is in control of all things. He's also aware of all things. And he was using those circumstances, everyone staying on board, to reach Haven safely. Perhaps those soldiers, sailors need to be on board to help navigate the ship properly. I don't know. But for reasons that God alone knows, they need to stay on board in order for them all to reach safety. Okay. We'll see more about that in a moment, because we're, we're going to talk more about how God had a plan, God had an end goal, but he also had a plan to, for reaching that goal. That is ordaining the destination and the means for reaching it. 
verses 33 to 38. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Remember I said earlier that they did have food with them? Here's how we know that. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So like I said earlier, they were unable to eat because of the violent motions of the storm. But here Paul urged them to, saying, you got to have something. you got to keep up your strength. So they ate, and they threw some of their cargo overboard to further lighten the ship. Once again, we see Paul was taking action, even though God had already promised that he'd be reaching safety. You know, he could have just said, okay, God, you promised. Cool. And just let things happen. But he still did things like urge the sailors to eat so they'd have strength to continue with the journey. He still urged the centurion, the centurion soldiers to prevent people from escaping. And I suspect he might have even helped in lightening the ship and casting cargo overboard. Paul understood that God's promise was one that is going to be fulfilled through the actions of ordinary people. In fact, I'd say through the ordinary actions of ordinary people. He knew that God ordained the end goal, reaching safety, and the means by which this would be accomplished. How does that apply to our lives? Well, consider this. What does Matthew 6 say about our lives, about God fulfilling our needs? Verse 25, 29 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink. A lot of you knows, people know these verses. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. We know that God will take care of us, take care of our needs, take care of our clothing us, take care of feeding us. So we could just say, kick back and say, okay, God, you take care of it, right? No, we're still to go about our daily business, be responsible, take care of ourselves, feed ourselves. God fulfills those needs to the actions of ordinary people. In fact, when someone does, is in danger of going hungry, how does God typically provide that person's needs? Through the actions of people around him. He could do the occasional miracle, but usually it's to happen through our ordinary actions. That's his sovereignty. That's his fulfilling our plan, his plan through the actions of human beings. And you'd be wise not to tempt God in that way anyway. Would God feed you? Would God clothe you? Certainly. But it might get unpleasant along the way. You want to avoid that. So trusting God's promise does not mean disavowing your responsibilities. His sovereignty coexists with our responsibility. A more profound example would be evangelism. And this is where it's very tempting for people to say, okay, God, you know who your elect are. And honestly, you wouldn't possibly let someone go die just because I didn't witness that person. So, you know, why should I even bother? 
Don't do that. Don't play those games. God commanded us to make disciples of all nations. Do it. Just do it. Why? Because God ordained both the goal and the means. Now, are we wasting our time by doing this because God already ordained what would happen? God, or that God wouldn't let someone... If you believe that God wouldn't let someone go to hell just because of your inaction, is that good enough reason to wash your hands and say, okay, God, you'll take care of this anyway if I just do nothing? First of all, don't second-guess God. God commands you to do something. That's all you need to know. And second, you can imagine all sorts of reasons why God would command you that anyway. Perhaps it's for your own benefit, and that's as good a reason as any. I have no doubt that witnessing to another person is not simply for their benefit, it's for yours as well. Even that person does not, does not respond. It's the building of your character. And you may not think that's important. Guess what? God does. And I'm going to wax philosophical here and suggest that there may be reasons we don't fully understand. God is in charge of the entire universe. He's in control of all things. Perhaps by your witnessing to someone, God can, you know, working within the confines of human free will, ordain a world where more people would come into the world who could be saved. Or more people come into the world and earn more crowns to lay down before the Lord's feet in heaven. The Bible speaks about how we'll do that sort of thing, how we'll earn our crowns. Your actions, your obedience could result in consequences beyond what you can see. Bottom line is, don't just rest in God's sovereignty and disavow your responsibility. Trust, obey Him, trust Him even if you don't understand. He has a reason for it. And if the speculation I gave is true, that by my actions, by my obedience, God would allow more people to come into the world and those people would come into heaven, then praise God. You've just helped create a new life. And praise God in heaven with us. That's speculative, but I don't think it's unreasonable. Like I said, I'm not going to try to figure these things out. It's not my business. Just do it. And God knows what's going to happen. He's giving us these orders, marching orders for a reason. By the way, as well on that topic, notice how God communicated his word to Paul. He could have done this through more dramatic means. He could have spoken directly to Paul. In fact, in the Bible, there are times when he does that. Does the phrase burning bush mean anything to you? Instead, what did he do? He sent an angel. Why? I don't know, but there's something going on in spiritual realms beyond what we can understand. Why did he choose to act through an angel? He chooses to act through his own means for sovereign purposes we cannot understand. But whatever those purposes are, praise be unto him, because there's glory in what he intends to do and glory in what he does do. Okay. So, verse 39 to 44. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned to, if possible, to run the ship ashore. Um, if I may pause here, they didn't know where they were. If you read the next chapter, you will find that they were approaching Malta. And in fact, the bay in which they eventually landed is now known as St. Paul's Bay. History in action. Verse 40 onward. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. They ho then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. Again, let me pause here. Despite all their trouble, despite everything they were trying to do, avoiding the rocks, avoiding the tossed by the wind, girding up the hull by tying ropes around it, etc., what they do, 
they slide their home plate and they get tagged. They mess up right at the very end, they've still run aground and the ship is lost. Okay. Continuing here, the bow struck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on the piece of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So, like I said, they ran into the grief just at the last moment, just as they thought they'd reached safety. It's like a Charlie Brown moment for everyone but a lot more tragic. Now this put the soldiers in a dilemma. They were afraid that some of the prisoners might use this confusion to escape. Disaster like that, ship runs aground, that's a good way for people to make a break for it. And so the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. It's because they knew that under Roman rule, they would be punished and they could be even executed if they allowed anyone to escape. Julius would not allow this. I mentioned Julius was a settled character. Julius was taking care of Paul throughout this whole story. He ordered everyone to either swim for land or hold on to planks or wreckage and somehow float their way to shore. I can't but wonder, was Julius doing this just because he was a nice guy? Or was it he doing it because he had been impressed by Paul's message? I'd like to think the latter was the case. We don't really know, but it's plausible. He ordered everyone to swim for shore swim for land, or hold on to planks, or somehow make their way there. Up to this very, the very end of this chapter, God was protecting Paul because God had a purpose for him. God was making sure he would reach his destination. In fact, to read the very next chapter, the last chapter in Acts, we see that God continues to do that. Paul gets bitten by a viper, and guess what? He shrugs off the effects. Okay. Great story. If you read chapters 20 and 28, there's a lot of drama there. I just wish we could teach the whole thing in one sermon. Not going to happen, but... So what does the story tell us? We see that obeying, Paul is something Paul, obeying God is something Paul considered to be a blessing, even when involved a great deal of suffering. We see that God's blessings often don't look that way. In the moment, they may look like great trials. In fact, they may be great trials. But they only work out for the benefit of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We see that God often chooses to accomplish his purposes to ordinary means, to our actions, in ways we don't necessarily understand. And that, guess what? You don't necessarily have to understand. Just obey. I hate saying that, because <laughs> I try to understand everything I can, but when it comes to God, just faith matters much more. And the most profound point of all, we see that God's sovereignty works hand in hand with our responsibilities. Do as he says, even though it might not make sense, should we be sharing the word? What good would that do? Well, it will do good. Trust in me. Should you be praying for your daily bread? That's what God says. Pray for it anyway, even though God already promised that he'd take care of you. Trust the Lord in all things, and you won't regret it. Let's pray. Praise you, God. You take care of us so many ways. Your blessings are beyond what you can imagine, even when they don't appear to be blessings. Praise unto you. And the fact that we can't understand your plans just testifies to your magnificence, to your sovereignty, to the fact that we cannot wrap our minds around what you do, everything that you do, but you know it all is magnificent. It's all for your glory, and your glory is worth everything. Amen. Amen. Amen.